to hide in the bilge of an enemy ship for a period of time. There are maps of ships later on, and like there's there's a battle map of a bilge, and the bilge looks gross. Mm-hmm. Dangerous Rodeo in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 206 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're reviewing a bunch of new releases for 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. We've got the Ghosts of Saltmarsh Adventure, Beetle and Grimm's Sinister Silver Edition of Saltmarsh, the Acquisitions Incorporated Sourcebook, and the Essentials Kit. Dynasty Unwarranted and the Character Creation Forge are taking the week off, and we'll be back next week. Uh, they, they deserve a little time off. Yeah, they could take a break. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Demigods. Demigods is a new tabletop role-playing game about what happens when mortal life is turned upside down by the discovery of your divine heritage. Yeah, same. Do you remember uh, Jesus was like 12, uh, and he was hanging out with the the Sanhedrin, and they were like, yo, and he was like, uh, yeah, mom, dad, things are going to be different now. It's like that. It's like that. They're playing uh, that game. Wait, didn't didn't Mary and Joseph already know that he was divine, though? Like... I mean, Mary was like, uh, the angel told me, and Joseph was like, uh, I'm going to roll with this, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so we'll see. <laughs> it sure seems like maybe they could have told him. Yeah, yeah, but who you going to believe a little kid? I don't know. Look, look. Demigods is about bringing mythology into the modern day, okay? So as a player, you take on the role of an epic hero and wield abilities and artifacts inherited from the divine against monsters, evil deities, and the mundane mortal world. Yep, you can play and create epic artifacts, mythic monsters, and lasting bonds with your fellow demigods. Yeah, so if you like uh, stories like Good Omens or the Percy Jackson series, Demigods is for you. It's kickstarting July 9th through August 8th. So for more information and a quick start of the game system, go to demigodspbta.com and follow creator Jason Mills on Twitter at It's Probably Okay. Uh, I'm guessing PBTA implies that it is a Powered by the Apocalypse game. It does, which should tell you something about how it's going to be mechanically structured, if that interests you. So if that sounds interesting, ask yourself, are you a god? And Shane, of course, we know the correct answer to that is always, always yes. yes. <laughs> it's a rhetorical I, question obviously <laughs> all right so uh, on to our fifth edition review roundup uh yeah we ended up with a bunch of fifth edition products in our laps uh people on twitter and on discord have been asking us what we think of some of them so we thought it would be good to just do uh an entire episode uh with like mini reviews of these products because a lot of them are like adventures and like shane we don't really do reviews of adventures because like we don't want to spoil them and we might want to play them someday Mm -hmm. Uh, but there i don't know there's been a slow release of fifth edition products since the uh, system came out usually it's like between one and three books per year uh, and only one of those is really like a source book that you can actually like dig into with with mechanics uh but Suddenly, we just have this uh, this bounty of material. So we're going to run through some of this stuff uh, and let you know what we think. Yeah, I mean, I guess to put it in context, we also have the Stranger Things box set that came out this year. Uh, and there's still more uh, releases coming out later in the year. So 2019 has gotten a lot of D&D products. Yeah, so you know, if you need to triage exactly where you're spending your money, hopefully this episode helps you a little bit. So first off, we're starting with Ghosts of Saltmarsh. Uh, which is an adventure book. An an old adventure book, in a way. Yeah, a series of old adventures. I think from like 1981 to 2005. It's a little like Tales of the Yawning Portal in that way, in that they've taken these old ones, they've updated them for 5th edition, and sort of lines them up so you can, if you want, uh, run a party through these adventures in a row, and it'll get them from levels 1 through 12. Of course, you can also run them piecemeal, uh, and you can also sort of just tear it apart, not even use the adventures, because there is a fair amount of rule information in here. Yep. We'll get to that in a sec. So one of the things that I like about this book is it, it opens up saying, all right, hey, you're in small, Salt Marsh, which is uh, a kind of small town uh, on the coast somewhere in Greyhawk. 
Uh, and you have the choice of having your characters be from Saltmarsh. And in order to like really um, ground your characters in this location, you've got four new backgrounds that you can choose. And of course, you'll, you'll be able to pick any of these backgrounds for uh, any character in any D&D campaign. So first up, there's the Fisher, which basically gives you like the Outlander feature as long as you're on a body of water. Like you can feed yourself and I think up to 10 people by fishing. And then there's this cool ability, right? Like backgrounds usually get like some sort of ribbon ability that doesn't actually do much mechanically, but these are actually a little bit more meaty. The Fisher can once per day attempt to impress an audience by telling a tall tale. And like there's a chart of like tall tales that you can roll on like, oh, I wrestled a lobster, like a giant lobster, um, like all the kinds of crazy things that you might hear from like an Ahab type character. Right. Now, then there's also the Marine. Uh, mechanically, it allows you to double your forced march time, which is actually pretty useful. I mean, we've built characters based around getting as long a forced march time as possible. Uh, this one just lets you like force march for 16 hours without having to make checks. And you can also land a boat uh, ashore safely, which is like a niche ability, but it's kind of cool to be able to like, hey, hey, I know how to do this, uh, so I just do it. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're in a storm or some other type of hazardous conditions, right? Like, that's a very handy ability. Uh, and then in terms of personality, every Marine, like you're like a, a Marine, right? Like a sailor soldier. Um, you've gone through some sort of hardship, uh, either in war or, or just in training or, or just like in a in a tough life. So you can roll on a chart for different hardships or just pick one. Yeah, my favorite here is Stowaway, which is that you had to hide in the bilge of an enemy ship for a period of time. It's interesting because there there are maps of ships later on and like there's there's a battle map of a bilge and the bilge looks gross. Mm -hmm. It's an unpleasant place. So next up, we have the Shipwright, which gives you the feature I'll Patch It, which allows you to basically restore hit points to your ship once. Yeah, like like once, right? Because you, it's not like once per day you can restore hit points. It's you can do this one time until the ship is dragged out of the water into like a dock for repair. Right. Which I don't know. How often does that happen? Never? Well, I mean, I think I think it's pretty usual that you would get into port and then make permanent repairs, right? But this is all about, like, getting you from the open ocean into safe harbor. Yeah, I guess it's basically like, all right, we are trying to get to this island as part of the next adventure. We hit a storm. I can make it so that, like, the ship is still seaworthy. Right. It's interesting. A few of them, of uh, these ribbon abilities, have some, like, slight... Uh, minor mechanical benefits, which I actually like. Like they're small enough where they don't break anything, um, but large enough where like if it does come up, you actually feel like you got something. Yeah, I mean like, you know, for example, the the shipwright has life at sea, and so you can roll on the table to determine kind of what was the sea's influence on your life. One of the examples is solid and sound. You patched up a war galley and prevented it from sinking. The local navy regards you as a friend. Right. So you get like a, a bit of like a background contact. Um, a, a lot of these will tell you like here's a person you you might know in town. So like you can start right away uh, by doing your investigation because that's what the adventure is about. I, I like that. Um, and in a lot of campaigns, you're going to have like a local Navy somewhere. And it's a nice opportunity for the GM to be like, Hey, you're interested in this. Great. Like, here's a contact for you yeah. or something like master of armaments, which is you specialize in designing and mounting defenses for the Navy. So you can easily recognize and determine the quality of such items, which is useful for salvage. Next up, we get smuggler, uh, which has the ability or the feature down low, uh, which is basically, you know, you've got a smuggler network and safe houses, um, in, Inshore. Right. Uh, and it's good that you have those places to hide because you also get a claim to fame, which is sort of like the the big heist that you've carried out or like some reason that people have actually heard of you before. Yeah, this is the whole uh, Kessel Run type thing. Right. The reason that the, you might need those dive houses in the first place. All right. So a lot of the mechanical information in this book is sort of spread out in sidebars or... Um, there's just like bits of information as you're reading in different different chapters uh, that that honestly makes it a little difficult to find stuff if you're not actually using the adventure. Um, I I think on you know if you have a D and D Beyond account, it's a little easier because you can sort of search for the rules. Uh, but there mm -hmm. is like a, a mini renown system 
sort of nestled into here. Uh, somewhere in chapter three, one of the tasks is to earn the trust of one of the factions that you encounter. Um, I do like this as sort of like the the setup for um, any other type of uh, situation you might put a party in in any other type of adventure where you need to like win uh, the trust of a faction. There are it lists a ton of different modifiers uh, to like your like reputation score with this particular faction based on your party's actions. Like so, if if you killed one of them, it's like a minus one for each one of the members that you've killed, even if you didn't necessarily know that like they were a member of the faction in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you show up with like uh, uh, captives of theirs that you freed obviously you get like a plus 15 you know so it's it it's an interesting uh, group of modifiers that you can easily adjust for any game that you want to play uh, then you also have the chance to make charisma checks uh, to increase your solidarity with that faction and this is like here are a list of tasks you could undertake the they all take like three to four hours in game you should need to role play it out and then when you're done you can make a charisma check here's the dc for it and if you succeed you get a certain number of points toward like your action score and judging by uh how steep the penalties are you're probably going to need quite a few of these checks to go well yeah i like that it does say sort of at the end of this section hey if these checks don't go well like that kind of sucks but there are other ways to gain points uh they can send you on quests for you to go like go like kill some things yeah. They enjoy that. You know, that's something that's helpful to them. Uh, or you can just bribe them right out. And, and there's like a mechanical formula. I think it's like one point per 10 gold pieces of stuff that you give them. Yeah. The other thing that, that I like about how they've structured that table is that it's basically all the sub factions of this group are their own separate check DC, right? So it might be easy to persuade the lowest level members, but they only give you a small bonus to your renown. Whereas if you can get some of the like head like major named npcs on your side well that's a major benefit right right and you can you have the option of going straight to the leader and like potentially like getting a, a bunch of points there but the dc is higher or you can sort of like skirt around and talk to the sage first and you know that might appeal to different characters and you get you know lower dc fewer points but you know more opportunities to to do smaller more numerous tasks yeah so then the thing you're probably here for if you're not playing this adventure is the ship info, like ship-to-ship -ship combat, um, statistics for ships. All of that is in here. Part of it is sprinkled throughout Chapter 2, which you know most of it takes place on a boat. Um, and then later there's just uh, multiple chapters that lay out the information for um, like ocean faring, a bit like uh, that 3.5... Sourcebook Stormrack. Stormrack, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically Appendix A of Ships in the Sea, a.k.a. Right. Stormrack. Yeah. So in uh, in Chapter 2, there's a lot of in information on, like, the sections of the ship. It lays them out. There are diagrams. You have maps of different deck layouts. Uh, it gives you, like, instructions and, like, DCs for running a ship it lets you know how many people you need in order to run a ship of a certain size it tells you what crew you need what crew goes in uh what section of the ship and gives you some like bare bones statistics for members of the crew yeah all of this feels like too detailed mechanically but kind of cool flavor that you might want to try and work in just to have in your back pocket yeah, like if you're actually running the adventure, it, it gets in, into the nitty gritty. I mean, there there are some cool mechanical stuff. Like there are actual rules for how to burn a ship so that you destroy it, uh, or <laughs> yep. or how to or how to sink it by like drilling a hole in it so you let in the ocean. <laughs> like those are the two main ways to destroy a ship. I, I feel like there's already rules for that. It's called a check. Like, <laughs> DC 20, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's really more like uh, for the, the GM, if they're trying to burn down the ship that you are on. Yeah, yeah, I right? think that's like, right. Oh, uh, they rolled really well. Uh, your ship's destroyed. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. We had a lot of HP. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there are DCs for boarding a hostile ship. There are uh, rigging diagrams. So I, I guess if you like really want to know, can you cross from this mast to that mast, you will. Yeah, it's a, that that part is a little weird, but I do like it because it's just kind of drawn at the bottom of the of the map otherwise, and mm. it feels like more of a cool flavor thing on the margin of a map, you know, that kind of like reminds you that oh yeah, you're looking at three decks, but this is a map of a ship that has rigging above it. 
Right. And it's really more like, yes, there there is like a, a guide rope from this mast or the this sail to, to the other one. So can I get across? Yeah, but obviously it's a, a pretty difficult acrobatics check. Yeah, I mean, the answer is, is it a cool thing that you're about to do? Then yes, it's possible. And is it a lame thing that you're about to do? Then I guess it's possible, but it's a really difficult thing. You know, like that's the answer. Yeah. So in the appendix, you get full-on stat blocks for six different kinds of ships, from uh, like a tiny rowboat all the way up to like a warship with dozens of crew members. That's uh, called a row ship. Thank you. A uh, row ship. Yes. Oh. Uh, okay. When I'm the captain of it, it's a ship. Sure. Yeah. Uh. So the stat blocks for ships work differently than like regular monsters. So you have actions and the number of actions you get to take depends on like how large a crew you have. So if like most of your crew's been killed, you can only take maybe one action rather than two actions. Um, or like if you're trying to steal a ship and it usually takes, you know, a minimum eight people to run. If you've only got a party of six, like you, you probably can only sail, but you don't have enough people to like fire the cannons. And each ship is broken down into different components. Uh, I think there's like the hull, there's the controls, there's uh, the weapons, if it has any. Um, there's the the locomotion, like wh whatever it is that's helping you move along. Maybe that's sails, maybe that's oars. Uh, it lists what kind of crew you need. There are maps for every single one of these. And there are rules for things like mutiny checks if you're, you know, want to play mutiny on the bounty. Yeah, and then there's also like cool little mechanical effects like your movement speed degrades based on how many hit points you lose to your given like either your sails or your oars. Yeah, each section like each ship is kind of like a a Mega Man villain, right? <laughs> Where like uh, each each component has its own HP total. So like for example, you can knock out somebody's um, sails entirely, but like the hull is not damaged and neither are the controls. Or you can knock out the helm so there's no control, but it still moves quickly because it's got the sails. Right. And then the the biggest ships have multiple like control functions, multiple movement functions, and multiple weapon functions, right? Right. And then if you destroy the hull, if the hull is reduced to zero hit points, then like the ship is sinking. Right. Uh, there are a list of ship component upgrades. These are basically magic items like a magically reinforced hull, um, you know, uh, like better oars, magical, magical like sails, uh, a hull that like makes difficult terrain within like 200 feet of your ship. Um, these are cool, but there aren't any prices. So you're not in a position where you can be like, ah, we, we're a pirate ship and we just like, we have all this loot that we got and now we're going to like, buy and upgrade our hull, which I find kind of annoying. Well, obviously, because you looted off the ship that you just took. Where we steal that ship's hull. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is weird. Like, it doesn't quite provide a, a function for how you would apply these things to your ship, right? Like, yeah. which, which given how much of this book is sort of um, flavorful downtime, like, you maybe could have thrown that in as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, if I'm a ship, right, like, the first thing I want to do is add these crazy components. Right. I want to first. I want to strip its hull. Yeah. <laughs> I want to pile it into my bilge, <laughs> or whatever my my cargo hold. Yeah. Then I want yep. to apply it, it right to the my bilge. Then <laughs> uh, there's info on crew actions and some rules on crashing a ship. I guess how to crash a ship. <laughs> uh, you mean how to park it with style? Yeah. 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 <laughs> We're drifting this ship. <laughs> yeah um there's also like um there's some rules for ramming ships uh as well and certain ones that have naval rams built on the prow mm -hmm. uh then we get info on traveling at sea this is basically an ocean going version of the uh exploration information in the dungeon master's guide so i don't know it feels a bit redundant yeah but it's all in one place yeah, um, then it lists hazards, so anything from, like, fire on your ship to a storm at sea to a conflict with the crew. DCs for avoiding those or, or dealing with them. Then there is information about ocean environments, so things like magical storms, whirlpools, shipwrecks, sandbars, coral reefs, uh, mysterious islands, those types of things. Yeah, there's a bunch of random tables, which uh, I like. 
you can put together a ship quickly. Like if your party is sailing and they see a, a ship on the horizon, and you want to know what it is and you hadn't planned this. Uh, great. You roll on these tables. It tells you the size of the ship, the crew, the name of the ship, its purpose, the like main race that is crewing the ship, what their attitude is and what problem they might be having mm-hmm. uh, either like so that you can rescue them or like the problem that is now going to be your problem because you decided to get nosy. And yeah, I mean, I like this even if you aren't running salt marsh, right? Like obviously this is good for interstitial encounters, but even if you aren't running salt marsh, you can you have enough variety in these tables that you can actually have a decent kind of like seed for the next little adventure in a campaign that is set seafaring, right? Like these these don't have to be so small or or so limited in scope that they're a single encounter at sea. They could be the seed for a full adventure if you wanted. Yeah, I, I like that the, ne- the next set of tables is for mysterious islands and what you'll find on them. Like, that's a great adventure seed, you know? Um, Which is to that- say what you'll eventually find on them, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> like, w- what is there to find? Right. Um, and certainly that could just be like, you know, you're in Chult and, and it doesn't need to be an island, right? It could just be like what's over the, the next hill. Those are the nice tables for that. But, you know, for a seafaring um, ad- adventure, like campaign, that that exploration part of it is is sort of it's half the fun is mm-hmm. like all right we're gonna sail in a random direction and just kind of see what we find right that's why islands come in chains because they're not free we should free the <laughs> islands okay well hang on that's how you get spell plagues <laughs> uh next up we get underwater encounter locations so this is um this is usable both as like random encounters or as sort of one-offs. But the the idea here is that sometimes you're not just sailing on the sea. You're going to have to go down below the waves. Yeah, sometimes you're sailing in the sea. Uh, the thing I don't like about these encounter locations is that they don't really have an associated CR level. So you don't really know how well your party is going to be able to handle them when they stumble across it. And, and like it, it, it's it's specific enough that it'll say, hey, these kinds of creatures are there. Um, these are the things that you will find there. There's like you know four locathos or whatever. So I guess you could go look in the monster manual, figure out what level those things are. You know, put it into a CR calculator and figure out what like that encounter is going to be in terms of CR for your particular party. But like, I I wish it just listed somewhere. Like, hey this is probably pretty deadly for like a party of fifth level characters or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit, it's a little bit frustrating in that regard. Yeah. But then like later in the middle of each one, it's like, Hey, if your party is this level, here are some other things that they might find. And I don't know why that wasn't just at the beginning. The other thing that they have in here is sort of a tie in specifically to salt marsh. Um, so each of these little kind of, encounter suggestions for the underwater locations include sort of a story hook for Saltmarsh specifically. Mm-hmm. So it, it's specifically tied to this book and this campaign, but of course it doesn't have to be. Uh, and then the book ends with a small bestiary. Uh, you've got creatures that are listed in the adventure up to about CR 14, but the vast majority of the creatures in here are clustered below CR five. So it doesn't add a ton uh, that you don't already have access to. But, you know, if you're running a, an aquatic campaign, some of these are nice additions. So one of the things that we always talk about when we do these reviews is the art that's contained in the book. Um, I think starting with the cover, um, I this is one of the books where I think the regular cover is actually better than the special edition. Um, they didn't go with uh, Hydro 76 for this special edition cover. It just has like a Sahagan on the cover. And it's, it's frankly, it's very dark. Um, it's not abundantly clear what you're actually looking at. It's, it's very, I don't know, blue. <laughs> right. I like just, the art is cool looking, but it's, it's dark and hard to see. It's kind of like, it needs more contrast, frankly, to be able to pick it out and what it is. And, and it departs from the, the line art of all the other special editions. Right. Uh, now, for the rest of the book, uh, there is a lot of repeat art. Um, I mean, there are some repeat creatures, obviously. Like, they're not entirely new creatures, so you could just get some art of those creatures from, like, the Monster Manual or other adventures. Um, it, but a lot of the, like, scenes uh, feel like oil paintings, I think. Um, 
they're they're very evocative a lot of them um this isn't a, the art in this book isn't particularly cartoony which i appreciate yeah and since it's a seafaring book you know there's a lot of rich blues and and those underwater sort of um marine life kind of paintings uh that is one of my favorite art styles or art, art subjects so I, I actually i love the art in this book like i love the kind of contrast of coral reefs and all of that and you get a lot of grizzled uh drunken sailors too which is nice yeah you get that i mean there's like some really cool art of like um a sahagan sitting on a throne like in the midst of a reef there's um there's one piece that's really nice of like a of a i think it's a wreck being lifted out of um lifted out of the water in like in a port um so there's a lot of kind of cool art there in addition to the the normal like swashbuckly art that you get in D. &D. all right so shane what's your verdict on buying this book i i like it a lot um of course i think it's well documented on the show that i really love pirates and seafaring campaigns and and nautical themes so uh, this book is kind of narrow cast right towards me um, I didn't have a whole lot of interest in running the adventure until we got a copy of it and I actually took a look at it. Um, spoiler, we also have the Beetle and Grimm's version, which definitely makes me that much more inclined to try and run the adventure. Um, but yeah, no, I like this book a lot. Um, I think the, the rules in it are great if that's something where you wanted to run nautical adventures and have that kind of D&D level of granularity that you expect. Um, this is a really great book for that. And the adventure has some great ideas in it or definitely some encounters that are worth stealing. Yeah. There's a lot in this book that's very poachable. Um, I'd say like in terms of the adventure, it, it's basically like, uh, tales from the yawning portal in that you can use the, uh, different adventures together, uh, or separately, but there's not really anything about them that like really stands out as, as being like truly amazing because like, there isn't like a necessarily a consistent through line in the way that there is for like uh out of the abyss or princes of the apocalypse yeah i think the through line here is going to be we're on a boat right right or we're yeah. in the water <laughs> all right that like the the sea is going to be the through line for these adventures more so than any given overarching plot right uh but the new rules i think are really good like like we mentioned earlier in some places they get a little too granular and like into the weeds but i actually really like that because you can always ignore those if you want like you don't have to run with every single dc but like i like this as a reference book for any time you're on or near the water yeah and and actually for D D ships like i actually really like these ship rules i like them better than what i was trying to adapt out of storm rack from third edition so good for them for beating me to the punch yeah, definitely. Like uh, relatively recently, we uh, I was running um, like the second part of Morning Glory, and like I had some guys set your sails on fire, <laughs> and and one of the arguments we had at the table was like, "There's no way our sails burn up that quickly." Yeah, they're made of like flash paper. <laughs> they burned, and in I was 12 like, "But seconds. they totally do." <laughs> Uh, but here, I, I like that there's actual rules for that, you know. And if I had had these rules ahead of time, then like the the pirates would have like in game known more about exactly how to like disable the ship. And like, you guys would have had a better idea of how to prevent them from doing that. You know? Yeah. I, the one thing I will say is it can be a little hard to just sort of throw this into a campaign that otherwise isn't spending a lot of time with it because there are a lot of pages of rules. Um, and it's going to be a lot to ask multiple players to really grasp all of these. Uh, if you're not going to be interacting with them regularly over a period of time, right? Yeah, for like I, for one encounter, you're going to be teaching your players and they're going to forget it. So you're not going to get a lot of back and forth in terms of the the nuance of the tactical decisions. Yeah, it's basically going to be whoever is holding Salt Marsh is the one who like is telling everyone else how this runs. Right. Um, and like this stuff doesn't really exist anywhere else. It's not on like a DM screen. It's like probably or it will be eventually, but it's not really right now in anybody's like compilation of like rules you need to know. Right. Uh, but yeah, if you are interested in running a, a game on the water or that like really involves a ship, not like, oh, one session on a ship, but like your players own a ship or they are like seafaring, uh, I think this is a no-brainer book. Cool. Agreed. Uh, even though it is a little bit difficult to like find what you're looking for until like you know it well. Well, so it's funny that you should say that, because now we should talk about Beetle and Grimm's, ah. uh, the Sinister Silver edition of Ghosts of Saltmarsh. 
Okay, so we uh, have recorded an unboxing video of that, which will be out mm, at some point. It takes a while for us to edit video. Let's just put it that way. Huh, interesting. It's almost um, like we do a podcast and not a, and not a YouTube. Yeah, very smart. Uh, also, you know, we don't have to shower every time we're on camera. Right. I don't know. I, I've seen some videos. I don't think it's required. Good point. Uh, anyway, so that's coming. So we won't do like a full on um, like piece by piece review of that because we did that on camera already. However, uh, it's a cool box. Yeah. So what are you getting that's separate from the book itself? Right. So th- the most important thing, I think, is to know that you are getting the book. Right. So you don't need to buy a hard copy of the Saltmarsh book and then also the Sinister Silver edition from Beetle and Grimm's. Um, it, it includes all of the contents of the books in it. Uh, what they have done that I think is really clever is they've separated it into four physical like pamphlets, right? Like sort of softback versions of it. Um, one of which is all of the appendices that you can just hand to players or that mm-hmm. you can look up quickly. And then the other three are the different chapters of the adventures. So mm-hmm. you, you take a partial book, you know, like 40 to 60 pages at a time rather than having to dig through this gigantic hardcover. Yeah. Um, so we didn't actually get to this on the uh, video because uh, we hadn't done like a, a full review of Saltmarsh yet. But I think a couple of the issues that I brought up just now with the book itself are fixed by the Beetle and Grimm's version. And one yep. is you can, ha- like you said, you can hand the appendix with all the rules to your players while you keep uh, the adventure, right? So there's not just like one giant Saltmarsh book that only one person has. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also just like keep that appendix like next to you for much easier reference so that you're not like missing your page when you're trying to run this thing from the book. Well, you don't have to because it comes with a custom DM screen that includes all of those rules on it. So that's the other thing is like it it puts all of these like ship and uh, sailing rules all in one place along with some other useful information that a GM actually needs. So like it is actually now in one place with this custom DM screen. Exactly. Yep. So between just the reorganized adventure book and the DM screen, I think you've got a much easier like ability to play with this adventure and all of these rules at the table. Um, but that's not all they have in there. So <laughs> there's so much more. <laughs> right. So there are 12 documents that you can hand out to your players. Uh, they're uh, printed on like pretty like high quality paper. It looks like, you know, it's been aged. It's, you know, crinkly. And these are like things that show up, like actual items that show up in the adventure. So like notes that you find on enemies or clues that you find in a place, little scraps of paper. So you can actually like hand them to your players, something that you like if you're an enterprising DM might make on your own. Yeah, instead of reading box text, you just hand them the prop. Um, Then there are also a whole bunch of battle maps. Some of them are paper. um, Many of them are laminated or or like kind of a plasticky print. Um, These are helpful for combat. They also have the layouts for ships. I mean, there's just, you know, the the big set piece battles, you will have the map available to you for those like iconic encounters. Yeah, and when you're first opening this thing up, it may be a little confusing as to like why some battle maps are in one format or another. I like the thought that was put into this because I was going through the adventure and being like, oh, this one is like wet erase for this particular encounter because of the way that the encounter is set up. Like mm-hmm. th- that makes sense. Like it'll it'll make sense once you're actually playing that encounter. Right. Yeah, it feels like they played this adventure learned the nuance of it and Mm -hmm. then built the box like they didn't just look at the adventure and say hey cool like we'll just make these three things and check check off the boxes here right so in addition to that you get 30 double-sided encounter cards so these are the kinds of things that um you know they're like little paper tents that you'll Mm -hmm. put on the top of the gm screen so that everyone else can see like on one side facing the players is uh, some of that good art that we talked about, like the art has been pulled out so it doesn't take up space in the book and you have them on these encounter cards. So you, people can see like who they're talking to or like what the scene looks like when they burst into the room. And on the back of it facing the GM is all the information you need to know about that, whether that's a stat block or information about the encounter or like DCs for this uh, particular scenario. Right. Um, then there are also two pieces of custom jewelry. So I think one is metal and one is like a ceramic maybe. Um, but they're, they're basically two props that you'll find, um, on people in the adventure. You now have kind of a physical thing that you can hand out to the players. Um, they're just cool. You know, they're, they're not going to change your game, but they're just like neat things. I will say as part of running the game, like the, one of these pieces of jewelry, the, um, 
it's easy to overlook in like while you're running the game like easy for easy for the players to overlook and like i think uh, in in the write up, even the the NPC who has it doesn't really understand its significance. So mm-hmm. it's actually like a pretty good tip off when the GM like hands you it to be like, oh, I guess this is important and maybe we should investigate it. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, like I think any of these, once you find them, like make good little tokens for like inspiration or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then all of this comes uh, first in a box, like in a little you know, kind of cardboard um, set box, sort of like the starter set or anything like that. Um, but all of that then comes within a burlap sack that reads stamped on the side, Salt Marsh Trading Company, um, which they lovingly note in their introduction piece that that has nothing to do with the adventure. It was just a cool thing that they wanted to do. So, hey, they printed it. Yeah, it's a proper burlap sack. Like, I yeah. dig it. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've got like six books stored in it right now. <laughs> not not potatoes. It would be perfect for potatoes. <laughs> no, no vegetables. Or I don't know, limes, I guess, would yeah, be right. more appropriate. Exactly. Okay, so all of this is obviously more expensive than just buying the, the Salt Marsh book. I think you can get Salt Marsh. It's $50 at your uh, local gaming store. It's cheaper if you buy it online, but, you know, if you can, go ahead and get it at your local gaming store. Mm-hmm. Um. The Sinister Silver Edition is $175 plus $25 shipping. Um, the shipping makes sense. It's like eight pounds. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gear. heavy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's $200. Um, Shane, is it worth it? I think if you are going to run Salt Marsh as, a, as an adventure path, then yeah, I think it's really cool if you can afford that. Um, it's going to save you a bunch of time on prepping things. Um, and I think it has just a lot of cool stuff in it. Like it's one of those products that's just very nice to have if you can do it it's definitely not required though yeah i mean you can you can run this with uh you can run salt marsh just fine without this and if you are just picking salt marsh apart to get like ship rules then this probably doesn't bring anything extra to the table uh right but you know this is specifically a niche product right they only make a thousand it's a limited run um as of uh, uh just a few days ago they still had some available but you know, at some point they're going to sell out. I I think like if if you want to do pirate type games, and like you said, if you want to run straight through Salt Marsh and use all of the bits of the adventure, then you know, and and you feel like um, you know getting a high quality product because you've got a little extra cash to burn, I think it's totally worth it. All right. Well, speaking of high quality products, if you've got a little cash to burn. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by D&D Beyond. So D&D Beyond is the official digital tool set and game companion for Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, you can use it to build characters. You can track your campaigns with it. Uh, you can, if you have a paid version, share it with other people in your group so that only one person actually needs to pay for it. That's something that we're doing right now with our campaigns. Uh, and everybody just gets access like online or just on their phone. Yep, nobody forgets their character sheet anymore. Nobody loses track of how many spells they had cast last session. We all stay on the straight and narrow. Well, everybody forgets their character sheet now, but they still have access to all their info. Good point. Uh, You can also use it to run adventures. They've now got a beta encounter builder that's available to use as well. Yeah, it's a good point that you just made about being able to save uh the character progress and like resource expenditures like, i think one problem you're you usually run into is like you know you're supposed to have i guess six to eight encounters between uh leveling up and like a certain number of encounters between long rests but it's difficult if your session doesn't run long enough to cram all those into one right so like people need to hold on to their sheets and like not adjust their hp or their spells spent like while we're waiting a week and like sometimes it's a couple weeks uh, and that's really complicated. It's just much easier to just open up like D&D Beyond again and like everything's right there for you just as you left it. Right. At dndbeyond.com, you can also find lots of awesome free content, things like the D&D basic rules or articles from great writers like James J. Heck or awesome videos from Todd Kenrick or recaps of their actual play, uh, Heroes of the Veil. 
And the team is always updating the site with new features. So when you do log on again, it might be that you've got uh, access to new features that you didn't know about before. Plus, uh, you know, all the new books keep showing up, which we'll talk about in just a second. So if that sounds interesting, check it out at dndbeyond.com. All right, continuing on our review roundup, almost bringing it home here in the final stretch, we've got Acquisitions, Inc., yeah, uh, I guess more formally, D&D Acquisitions Incorporated. Yeah, I was in D&D Beyond like a week ago. Uh, and I was like looking at some items to like hand out to you guys. And I was looking at the notation. I was like, what the heck is AI? What, where is this item? This, right. <laughs> this item has a weird name and it, it's like strangely anachronistic. And a- oh, Acquisitions I get it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So what is it, Acquisitions Inc.? So Acquisitions Inc. is an actual play that was run by Chris Perkins for the Penny Arcade um, crowd. Um, And so it it was a very successful actual play. Um, It eventually became kind of a staple of the PAX conventions. Um, And I I went to... um, actually to a movie theater to watch a live stream of it uh, at Times Square... (laughs) in Manhattan uh, while they were at PAX uh, West, I think, um, during the Storm King's Thunder. So it's kind of like one of the biggest actual plays, um, certainly one of the biggest official actual plays um, of D&D. I think that means it, it won an award at Gen Con last year, right? Didn't like the, the concept of actual play win an award or it, something it did, like that? It did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so this book allows you to play in the... Not the universe, because Acquisitions, Inc. is set in Forgotten Realms. Right. It, it lets you play in the oeuvre of Acquisitions, Inc. In, in that the, it's in the like, style. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's like the office, but in D&D. Right. So the concept of Acquisitions, Inc. here is that Acquisitions, Inc. is a corporation within Faerun um, that is a business that sets up franchises of adventurers. And what they do is they go and get stuff. Um, that is their business. That's what they do. Uh, it is it is led by someone by the name of Omindran, who is a uh, a cleric, and you know everybody who goes adventuring with him or on the various sort of spinoff shows are members of either his company or of f- uh, franchises of Acquisitions Inc. based in the different cities across Faerun. So the conceit of this book is that your uh, group is creating its own franchise of Acquisitions Inc. somewhere in Faerun. Yeah, so it's got, you know, it, it, it opens up with an introduction and then a corporate prospectus. Here's why you should invest in our business. Right, here's why you should open up a franchise. Here are all the things that will enable you to do. Also, here are all your responsibilities as a franchisee. Right, exactly. So in terms of uh, the book itself, it, it opens with a fast franchise generator. These are random tables that will give you a logo for your franchise. It will uh, let you pick a headquarters. Um, it helps you pick out staff. This is like if you don't want to go through all the rigmarole of like figuring out exactly who you are and, and what you're doing. I kind of like this better as like maybe a, a quick way to come up with a rival franchise because I think if you're going to play a full game, you want to go through everything step by step on your own. Yeah, it's good for a one-shot, though. Oh, yeah, that's true, like at a con game. Yeah, exactly. So then it explains franchise advancement. So your franchise, right, your party, uh, begins at rank one, uh, franchise rank one, and and it goes up to rank four. Each of these correspond with the tiers of gameplay. So, like, levels one through five, uh, levels six six through ten, uh, 11 to 16, and 17 to 20. Right. Uh, and as you go up in rank, there's a little chart that shows that uh, each increase in rank lets you increase your area of influence. So, like, rather than your franchise being in ch- in charge of, like, a small town, uh, it-, it goes up to, like, maybe a small region and then, like, a nation. Uh, each time you go up in rank, you can increase your staff size. You get different kinds of staff. Um, you can take on uh, more and more difficult tasks, uh, your headquarters gets new features, and of course, your costs go up. Actually, they skyrocket. Exactly. <laughs> um, those are costs both to maintain your franchise, and then of course to pay back to corporate. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's a theme that like this book keeps touching on again, and 
it's it's not a problem that I have with it. It is a convention of the genre that some people won't necessarily be into in that there's a lot of bookkeeping. Right. If you actually want to run this franchise, like part of, I guess, the fun of doing this is thinking, okay, uh, our monthly costs right now are actually 6,000 gold pieces uh, that we have to pay to corporate. And if we don't, then we start taking penalties. So we need to go accomplish these things, not to save the world, but we need to make some gold. Exactly. And like, some people will be into that and others I think will sort of look at it as like, uh, it's a bit tedious that like just just when you think that like you're ahead or don't have to worry about these these tedious costs, like levels one to two, you count your arrows, right? But in an acquisitions ink game, uh, you are counting your gold all the time because you always have skyrocketing costs. Right. So... Then we'll get into company positions, um, but it should be pretty clear here, if you're playing in the Acquisitions Inc. version of Forgotten Realms, you are dealing with much more powerful characters than your average PCs. Um, yeah, not- because your, your position's almost like an additional background, but with... Uh, actually, it's more like uh, additional su- an additional subclass slapped onto you. Yeah, it's, it's like a feat that grows with you, as well as usually a magic item that also gets more powerful with you. Right. So like you, you pick your company position, like what is your position in the company? And then you have a rank in that equal to your fran- franchise rank. And each time that goes up, um, you get additional abilities. So everyone starts with proficiencies that you just get for free, uh, access to tools that you're borrowing from corporate that you just get for free, uh, and then some magic items in it, and eventually like additional mechanical features and abilities. Yeah, and all of this is presented sort of in real D&D rules speak, but with the same kind of tongue-in-cheek that you would expect of a Penny Arcade like comic strip um, sort of backed uh, genre, right? So like, you get proficiency in super narrow uh, examples of using a skill, right? So for example, the, um, the decisionist gets proficiency when trying to influence a decision being made by the group, assess the popularity of certain customs or individuals, or boost the morale of franchise hirelings. Those things are situations. They are not skills, right? Right. Like if you're playing an Acquisitions Inc. game, it is an episode of The Office. You are at times looking at the camera and breaking the fourth wall. And like the book expects that you're going to be doing that. Like, like I think one of the decisionist abilities is, hey, if someone isn't here and you're taking a vote, like a party member isn't here and you're taking a vote, you get their vote. <laughs> right. Because like, you're the one here making decisions. And even just like the term decisionist, right? That's not a fantasy trope. The cartographer, sure, you know, um, but... The documancer? Right. <laughs> like you're in charge of contracts and like legal arguments. The right. hordes person, which is the like person who like finds and, and gathers magical items, they... Even even the terminology is tongue in cheek, right? Um, almost all of these are are good. Obviously, like you get some quite powerful abilities when you get higher level, and some quite powerful magic items. Uh, I don't necessarily think that they're like one is better than the other. It it's really more, um, what are you interested in doing? And and I like the idea of being someone who isn't necessarily specced for this task, but you get better at it because that is your job. Yeah, it strikes me that these things don't particularly synergize with a particular class very well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just sort of extra things. Like they're not ribbon abilities because they're useful, but they're very they're they're like non-optimized flavor items rather than sort of leaning into whatever your class does and making you that much better at it. Yeah. So if you do want to optimize, you should actually like take a look at these and probably pick something that you're not already good at because you'll get things like advantage on this niche use of these particular skills, but you might already have advantage on those skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a list of franchise tasks and downtime. Um, you can, well, there's the the regular downtime activities that you can take, many of which are renamed, uh, but then there are lots of different tasks that a franchise can do. It's a bit like the tasks that you can undertake while, while you are like in the exploration pillar in, in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, but these can be things like, you know, building up a new franchise, uh, or like, you know, finding work somewhere else. There there are things that like the organization might actually undertake, but one person is in charge of doing that. Yeah. Like, you know, a reorg. Right. That sounds fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, it, only if you roll well does it actually save you any money. <laughs> I think the most common outcome <laughs> is that it costs you extra. Yep, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> or you can do, you know, some marketeering. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there are some player options. Uh, there are a couple of backgrounds, things like celebrity adventurer's scion or failed merchant. Rival intern, of course. Uh, that is a, that's kind of one of those common tropes of Acquisitions, Inc., is that uh, lots of employees who aren't paid are interns, um, and interns are imminently expendable on account of they're not paid and we don't know their names. Oh, so hirelings. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so when you get upgraded from intern, it's when you actually join the, uh, you know, join one of their shows. Nice. Uh, there is a new race, Verdan. Uh, I've never listened to Acquisitions, Inc. Do these, like, show up a lot? I've never heard of it, but okay. it, it could be. They're basically like good aligned chaos goblins. Like they were tainted by some sort of creature. They were goblins and now they're goblin y people, but they have high charisma and high con. Uh, at level five, you grow from small to medium, which is weird. They have bad telepathy. Uh, they can re- make rerolls uh, when they spend hit dice to heal, and they get proficiency in persuasion and advantage on wisdom and charisma saving throws. So, like, they're pretty good, but they're a very strange race. Uh, the book only has seven spells, levels one to three. They're mostly enchantment, and some of these are just straight-up reskins of other spells. Like, there's a weird version of a hypnotic pattern where you're, like, holding up a shiny bit of treasure, and that's the thing that's enthralling people. Yeah, there's also um, there's also licensed spells, I believe, uh, where you pay a royalty if you use yeah. any of Jim Dark Magic spells, <laughs> <laughs> which actually tend to just be worse or more random than whatever spell they're based on. Yeah, absolutely. Like his magic uh, missile is like, eh. Yeah, I I didn't he I didn't see any of these that I immediately recognized as things that had happened on the show, but it did strike me as the kind of things that they commonly like petition for slightly better benefits for or like to to bend one of the other spells to do this ability uh based on some item or whatever right that they're also holding like the kind of, because it's a very loose flowing kind of form of D rather mm-hmm. than a very strict one right so these feel like kind of codifying that into your game rather than necessarily things that you would have seen on the show right uh, so then a lot of the book is actually an adventure for four PCs of levels one to seven called the Orrery of the Wanderer, which takes the party all over the Sword Coast looking for bits of a MacGuffin artifact that they're trying to put back together. Yep. Very, uh, very Acquisition Zinc type plot. Yeah. Uh, after each chapter, the party levels up uh, and then you get some downtime options. Uh, it's a relatively straightforward adventure. You get all the stat blocks for the Acquisitions Inc. characters. They're actually pretty low level. Yeah, a lot of them are, um, which is fine. You know, I mean, like, they they do cool things because they're on TV, basically, mm-hmm. you know? like uh, There are some monster stat blocks. Uh, you get a list of franchise features that you can add to NPCs so uh, to make it, to sort of flesh them out so that they have um, company positions as well. And then two new vehicles, which use the same rules as the ones that we saw in Ghost of Saltmarsh, except this mm-hmm. <laughs> one is the Battle Balloon, yep. uh, and then the other is the Mechanical Beholder, which so, are both exactly what they sound like. <laughs> so like the Mechanical Beholder feels like the uh, Apparatus of Qualish, but just adapted for vehicle rules rather than magic item rules, right? Yeah, you can basically fit your party and that's it inside. Right. Uh, there are some magic items. The It's mostly just the orrery and its components, and they are, like, McGovern-level powerful. Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what's the verdict on this book? It it feels, to me, even more niche than something like Saltmarsh and its uh, seafaring rules. Yeah, so it strikes me as having more rules in it that are applicable to players, but those rules will be applicable to fewer games, right? Because when you're when you're signing up for this, what you're really signing up for is the tongue-in-cheek form of D&D rather than, you know, like kind of an expanded setting of D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, which, for me, I think 
I'm not a huge fan of Acquisitions, Inc., but I am kind of a mark for the big shows that they do at PAX. Um, I always do kind of follow those when they hit the feed or when they hit YouTube. Um, I really enjoy Patrick Rothfuss on the show. I think he's just a fantastic performer. Like, I've spent a lot of time watching and laughing. Um, so I like it, right? Like, I would I would also enjoy playing this book, um, but I would by no means say that it's a mandatory addition to your collection. Yeah, it's difficult to sort of like reskin and try to play straight by like using these organization rules to like run a business. Right. You know, because then you have to reskin everything like Documancer and even the abilities are like tongue in cheek and funny abilities. Yeah, there. this is not something that's going to be quickly adapted for, oh, I wanted to run a business or, or I wanted to run an adventuring company kind of straight up D&D style. This isn't really going to fit that need. Right. Although, like, I would totally play an Acquisitions, Inc. game completely separate from any other game that I was playing. I would kind of want to play an Acquisitions, Inc. Saltmarsh game now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just forget forget the Kraken. Like, we're looking, we just want to run a trading company here. Right. Exactly. Like, your, your Acquisitions, Inc. Saltmarsh franchise. Right. Uh, so, yeah, niche book. Um, it does what it does really well, though. So, if it's your thing, it's worth it. If not, you can easily skip it. I also enjoyed reading it. Just straight up, like, it was actually a fun book to read. Yeah, I agree. Um, which is not the case for every D&D book. So actually, yeah, you're not going to waste any time if you go to your local game store and, like, thumb through it. That'll be fun. Yeah. And and the art is very, like, cartoony and campy and, and fun and fits perfectly with the genre. Yeah, and it's very Penny Arcade-ish art. Right. So if you like that, this is your book. All right, so last up, we have the Essentials Kit, which is... It's not really a review so much, um, but I th- I thought this was far more interesting than I had initially thought it would be. So this is a box set. It's a bit like the starter set. It includes everything you need to run the included adventure, which is Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, uh, which is levels one through six. Mm-hmm. So it comes with uh, 11 dice, a DM screen, a map, a full color map, character sheets like blank character sheets a bunch of terrible cards uh that uh let you track initiative sidekicks magic items conditions and all the quests i thought the cards were fine but sure so the main draw of this box set is that you don't need any other books um it has everything that you need like everything you can own nothing about DD. you don't have to know anything about DD. you can buy this and you can run dragon of ice spire peak drawback though is you can't run anything else beyond it without then going out and buying like the php the dmg and the monster manual right so this is retailing for 25 dollars for now it is a target exclusive and you'll be able to get it everywhere on september 3rd Uh, it's only 25 dollars though which is pretty cheap for like an in-store DD product all right, so inside, you've got a rule book. It's a 64-page cut-down version of the PHB. So it's the basic rules, right? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, so there are rules for... It's, it's basically rules somewhat rearranged for people who do not know what they're doing so that okay. they can build characters, and specifically the characters in this, uh, in this adventure. Okay. So it starts off with like how to create a character and here's how to play the game. There are rules for dwarf, elf, halfling, and human. And then each of those, like it's very bare bones sub races. So like no drow, uh, there's no variant human. Like it, it's just a very simplified version of what you'll get in the PHB. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are rules for bard, cleric, fighter, rogue, and wizard. Each of these only gets two subclasses, and the spell lists only go to level three. Like, it completely ignores everything that you're not going to be using for this levels one to six adventure. Then it also includes a limited number of backgrounds. There's five. Uh, and then a very cut-down version of the spell list, although I kind of like that. Like, there's still 74 spells from levels one to three. And then in the back, you get stat blocks for what are called sidekicks. We'll get to those in a little bit. The adventure itself um, is written as if anyone who's reading this could be the GM or could be the player. Like you open it and it's like, what's a GM? Uh, what's an NPC? Like mm-hmm. this is very much like, hey, uh, like my 
like uncle bought this for me at Target and doesn't really know what it is and handed it to me and like we opened it up and we're digging through and like oh what's D&D that's interesting right. oh it's kind of like a choose your own adventure book huh yeah there's a map of the Sword Coast right near Neverwinter and then it starts off with a walkthrough of the adventure but <laughs> the adventure begins with character creation it's like step one make characters mm-hmm. which is which is so interesting like it's really yeah. hand-holding you. It's walking you through if you know nothing about D&D, right? Yeah, exactly. And it introduces, I don't know, it, it calls it like a one-on-one rules variant, but it really, it's its not. It, like, it says you can play with a GM, one person is a PC, and then you add in one of these sidekick characters, which is a bit like a hireling. Mm-hmm. Or you can play with like, you know, four or five players. Sure. Um, but like the whole thing is sort of balanced around one person and one sidekick. Oh, okay. So it's very much a training wheels adventure. Like you start in the town of Phandalin. You can like run around the town, meet some people, explore. And then there's like a board with with starter quests. Like they're literally called starter quests. And there are three of them. Cool. Uh, uh, you complete two and you unlock three more. Yep. Complete two of those. Unlock the last three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most of the book then is just adventure location. So like the quest is... You know, if you accept this quest, go to this section on this page. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the book is just, well, here's like here's that location, here's that location, here's that location. Each one opens up with, here's the ideal level your party will be to handle this. If you are higher or lower level, here's some of the issues you might deal with. Uh, and it's not 100% linear. Like some of these locations will connect to others or give you tip off about a different location or the party can possibly stumble on one of these locations on the way to another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the main the main draw here is that the dragon, the eponymous dragon can show up at any of these locations but then will retreat after it eats or takes some damage. So the dragon is sort of omnipresent but not until the end do you actually go to Ice Spire Peak and have your final showdown with it. Yeah, I like this. Like every time your party goes somewhere, you roll a die to see where the dragon is. And mm-hmm. if they happen to be where you are, like it doesn't murder all of you but you get to see the dragon it shows up and like eats some livestock and if you try to attack it once it takes 10 damage it's like peace i'm out yeah right um but it puts dragons early on in your dungeons and dragons right yeah yeah super cool and then yeah you know that final showdown like when you finally get to its lair like it eventually like you run out of quests right and the final quest is like go to ice fire peak and kill the dragon right uh so you show up there and then like hopefully you win it and then it just ends with stat blocks for every enemy in the adventure. You don't need the monster manual at all. Everything that's mentioned gets a stat block. Cool. So the $25 also gets you a digital copy of the adventure on D&D Beyond and a code for 50% off the digital PHB. So if you do think that like, D&D is something you want to get into, you can at least like dip your toe a little deeper in the water relatively cheaply. Yeah, no, I like this a lot because that means this... You buy this book for $25. That's basically half the cost of a PHB. You can buy the other half of the PHB. And so now you've tried D&D without actually having to put out any extra money for to get started proper, right? Yeah, I was actually really surprised how much I liked this product. Like, I went in thinking, like, eh, you know, there's no point in this. Like, I already have everything else. Why would I be interested in this? Mm-hmm. But I think there are really sort of like two markets for this product. One is the experienced GM who wants an easy way to introduce very new players. Like I keep thinking at some point I'm going to introduce my wife's cousins to D&D because like, you know, they all get together and play Catan or Mm -hmm. like Ticket to Ride. You know, like they get board games, they like them. And I've been thinking like, how do I introduce them to D&D without scaring them off by like throwing down 400 pages worth of books in front of them and having them look through everything, right? Right. But if we're starting up, like I was thinking, okay, I'll make sure that like, don't pick a druid and don't pick a tiefling. Like these are complicated, but I don't have to do that with this. I can just hand them this tiny little pamphlet and like they pick one of like seven sub races and one of like nine subclasses and they're good to go. And like, there are no druids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other would be like a group of players who doesn't know what they're getting into, but wants to learn on their own. And like this really walks you through it nicely. Like the the, enti- the encounters are tidy. It's even got a little bit of replayability. Um, if you ended up with this thing in your hands and you own a bunch of other D&D products, you could still like use some of these encounters elsewhere at low levels. 
Yeah, this strikes me as a product that would do really well in the hands of somebody who started with uh, more like a Powered by the Apocalypse game, right? If, you're, mm-hmm. if your entree into RPGs was not through D&D-like games, right, where you buy a big book, digest all the rules, and then spit out your character. Instead, if you had all the rules put in front of you on your character sheet and you went from there, um, this kind of gives you something closer to that experience. Right, and just the rules that you need to actually get through this. And then if you right. want to, you know open up the whole can of worms later you can cool so yeah i'm, I'm in the same boat like i think this is a, a great product for the audience it aims for uh and otherwise like i don't think you need to go pick it up if you already play D. yeah uh unless you want to buy a copy of the like D beyond php you can basically get this for free if you yeah, buy yeah. this first, right? Yeah, that's true. And like, like like I said, I might pick it up just like as a tool to introduce some people on like a long weekend. Um, one other thing I will say is that the dice that are included in it, first of all, there's 11 of them, which is not the typical number. Um, usually you get the seven dice set. Um, and the second thing is it is actually the like um, translucent dice, not the opaque dice. So it just looks more fun. Yeah, the, the, it's a nice little dice set. You get two d20s, which is good because like advantage and disadvantage. Advantage, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, then, and, you, and get, then you get uh, three. It's three or four d6s. Yeah, so it's it's your regular ten dice set, right? Which is forty six plus an extra d20. Right. Which again, you need those because you're rolling spell. You don't have. Uh, actually, I don't know if you have fireball, but uh, you're you're rolling multiple dice on a lot of these spells because you're doing like two d6 or three d6. Right. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That is my burning hands, because it's an important and useful spell for me to use. Well. I think it's probably the most the most impressive fire spell I've ever heard of. <laughs> well, since we can't roll new characters, um, because we only have the essentials kit, we'll have to skip the character creation forge this week. But we'll still talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord through the link in the show notes. So let's also take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And hey, keep an eye on those rewards because new ones will be coming out soon. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about creating lively NPCs quickly. And in the character creation forge, we're building the Green Singer. Well, that's it for episode 206 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Elderwood Academy. They are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. All of the products are crafted to look like spellbooks, scroll cases, codices, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. So, a new product that they've just added to Elderwood Academy are their mini Phoenix dice. They are the uh, kind of smaller version. They fit in the mini hex chest. Uh, but they're like zinc alloy, so they're metal, they're heavier, uh, and they come in a bunch of different finishes. They're, um, I especially like the oil can finish. Uh, it's kind of got a, more of a rainbow color to it, but they've also got ancient silver, ancient gold, ancient copper, kind of a worn look to those. Is there anything better than tiny metal dice? No. No, because you could roll them even without uh, a tray. Right, because they're probably not going to destroy someone else's table, and yet I mean, they're still metal. They're probably going to destroy the table. Yeah, but I don't mind. It's your table. Yeah, you might want to roll them on a book or something. Nah, it's fine. No, but they're uh, they're very cool. I like I like mini dice. Uh, I the thing I don't like about mini dice often is that they are too light, so they don't feel like they roll very well. But when you've got a little more like metallic heft to them, then I think they're going to roll nicely. All right, so if you like that product or you want to look at many more, go to elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split.